0: Some of the great writers from Virginia Woolf and James Joyce to Henry Thoreau and William Wordsworth, they understood that there was a profound connection between walking, thinking and storytelling. I wish I'd known this when I was starting out as a young writer, but I did stumble upon trail running at the slightly weathered age of 40 and it quite literally changed my life and my writing process. I realized that moving my body wasn't about using up calories to stay thin. It was about burning off stress, balancing my body chemistry, and settling back into my skin. It was about the muddling through life's complexities that happened while I was sinking into the cadence of my feet moving over the rocky trail. The crunch, crunch, breathe, breathe, crunch, crunch, breathe, breathe. At the same time, I discovered meditation. And here I learned that this wasn't the sacred domain of some exclusive religious practice. I'm an atheist, after all. Meditation, I realized, was just another exercise, something that does for the mind what running does for the body, making it fit, agile, strong, balanced and healthy. In researching this podcast, I've now discovered that psychedelics complement these two forms of exercise creating a trilogy of practices that simulate the flow state, bringing us back to the present and softening the self. Welcome to The Psychonauts, a podcast that trips into the realm of psychedelic psychiatry as hallucinogenic mushrooms go on trial in South Africa. Please visit the website, psychonauts.co.za, in case you missed previous episodes, or you can catch up on iTunes. This episode is a slight departure from the normal scripted storytelling approach I've taken so far. Today's episode is a Q&A with Adrian Baker, the host of a podcast called Hacking Consciousness, Adrian brings an evidence-based view to the fascinating convergence of these disciplines and looks at how different cultures have used them, in his own words, to pursue our innate desire for happiness, fulfillment, creativity, connection, and purpose. Join me, Leonie Jubeir, for a conversation with podcaster Adrian Baker. This is Episode 5, Hacking Consciousness. Um, Adrian Baker, you're a host of a podcast called Hacking Consciousness, and you understand how these three very different practices intersect and shape how we move through and experience the world. I'd like you to introduce yourself, please, and explain to us why Hacking Consciousness.
1: Sure. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on the show, Leone. Really appreciate it. Glad to be here. And... Yeah, so I am originally from the U.S., though I've kind of lived and traveled all over the world. And uh, I'll say the premise of hacking consciousness first, and then we can kind of get into the backstory. But So the premise of the show is to explore the mind or consciousness through the prism of science, technology, meditation, and psychedelics. And I got the idea for the show because... I had the sense that there were a series of conversations happening in different communities to some extent across these communities around topics that were related to consciousness and they're coming at different realms. So I'll give you an example. There is increasing interest in meditation in totally secular forms, which you alluded to in the US, I think in Europe and uh, other places generally in the West. And in particular, that's the case in Silicon Valley, where I've spent a little bit of time. Uh, I also definitely was aware of a growing interest in what's called microdosing, taking small amounts of psychedelics to enhance creativity or problem solving. It's not really a surprise for those of us who are familiar with the history of Silicon Valley. um, People in that community have really always used Psychedelics and Steve Jobs would be a great example, the way he talked openly about that with his biographer. So I, I just had the sense that there were these different kinds of conversations happening. Now, of course, the other would be the growing interest in meditation from the perspective of neuroscience. So modern science has really been able to validate a lot of these claims that people basically from Eastern traditions have been making. Um, In the East, they really have, and I think this is something that's perhaps important for listeners from a Western audience and background to understand. Um, I think in a lot of ways, we've been traumatized by our history with religion, at least those of us who don't really subscribe to what was on offer. Um, and it carried with it the Abrahamic traditions by Abrahamic right I mean Judaism Christianity Islam carry with it particular ideological baggage that other religious traditions in the East do not have and we could go on I mean that would be a whole nother podcast but in the East it's really not so much about a faith based system right which in particular is a big part of Christianity and Islam Um, It really is about these contemplative practices. And I don't want to say that there is a role for theism and faith. That is definitely true in certain traditions like Hinduism. But in certain other Indian religions, Advaita Vedanta, offshoots of Hinduism, Tantra, Buddhism, Taoism, it's really not about a belief system. And it is about specific techniques that are ways of exploring in investigating the mind and though people in that tradition weren't doing double blind clinical trials or have the same technologies that Western science has um, and it is subjective versus objective forms of knowledge which we can get into later it is very much empirical it's rational and so that's something that I would underscore for viewers and excuse me listeners in the West who are thinking of we had this tradition of dogma until the Enlightenment came along and kind of established rationalism. That that kind of trajectory wasn't the case in the East. They didn't have to push back against that. I mean, their age of reason was way, way before the birth of Christ, right? The Buddha and even before him. So um, anyways, I'm interested in sort of talking about the ways that wisdom from the East meets meets West in a modern way and in a way that engages listeners who are perhaps very skeptical of organized religion or even hostile to organized religion. And I'm aware that there's a lot of overlap and interest with the tech community there, but it's really a conversation that's open to anyone, including those, by the way, who may happen to believe and God or, or have a faith, I, I welcome those people as well who are have, interested in having these conversations in a more thoughtful way.
0: Do you want to explain a little bit more about what you mean by consciousness versus the brain? You know, we have this kind of, we have the machinery of the brain, the actual physical structure in our head, but what is consciousness in relation to that? And then how do psychedelics then work with that brain in the similar way that the practice of meditation does?
1: Sure. So let's see where to begin. I'm realizing at some point I probably should give a little bit of my backstory or else before I get into the psychedelics, just to give some context. Yeah, that might be a little bit helpful if you don't mind if I do that first. Um, So... I should say so. Let's let's separate it into two separate tracks. Roughly, there's my interest in psychedelics, and then my interest in um, yoga, meditation, and Eastern religions. Uh, that latter group of my interest in meditation and, and yoga and contemplative practices is more recent than my interest in psychedelics. That really started when I was about 29 years old. I Frankly, you know, for a lot of my teenage years and even part parts of my 20s, it was really off and on. But I mean, like a lot of 20-year-old guys, I, I wasn't particularly conscious of my health. Um, but, you know, even more so, I, I really was a pretty big partier. And in particular, I, I did drink quite a lot. And I just got to the point where you know, in a lot of ways, like I just, I was abusing my body. I was, it was drinking too much alcohol. I was not eating well, um, all the usual sort of things. And that, that puts one into that kind of downward spiral. And I kind of got to a point where I hit rock bottom. It wasn't a particular terrible incident, fortunately, but in terms of just my health and where I was physically and mentally, it took, um, getting there. And then, I moved abroad and the act of kind of doing that within a couple of months, I'd moved to Thailand at the time and, you know, I basically within two months went from drinking very heavily to totally stopped drinking. I got into yoga. I was very into Buddhism and that's really put me on a path that I'm still on today. Um, and so that's what really sparked my my interest in yoga and meditation and it, it's really only intensified in the last few years I, I've done several yoga teacher trainings and meditation retreats and 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 just sort of studied religious studies um, in particular Buddhism and then more recently a tantric form of Hinduism, sometimes referred to as Kashmir shaivism and that's really been a way for helping me to you know, it made me think of it a little bit when you talked about your running. Um I think balance is key. Not only it's the balance of chemicals within your body, it's it's also mentally, emotionally. You know, I was into yoga for a while, a few years, before I ever really settled on it until I I got to a point where I'm like, okay, this is my thing. And not that one has to be exclusive with it at all. I do other forms of exercise. But after years of doing some yoga, then some lifting weights, then some swimming, I got to the point where I realized, you know what? There's nothing that I get the most out of overall, not only physically, but mentally and emotionally that I do from yoga. And this is before I really even had a, a consistency meditation practice, which came later. But I think that sense of balance that you touched on is key. And a really in, important way to frame this is just, and we can put this in sort of Western psychological terms. And for listeners who are interested in sort of investigating this themselves, Daniel Goleman would be the person who I would recommend to them. He's a Harvard psychologist who is into. Buddhist meditation for years and his big thing is he wrote emotional intelligence which made him famous among other works but he really puts uh, a lot of the insights of contemplative practices into western psychological terms and so he'll talk about it in terms of self-awareness self-management social awareness and then relationship management and so when you think about that those are two buckets of skills some internal some external and this is what yoga and meditation help us to do they cultivate a sense of attention right which really is about developing self-awareness right when we keep coming back to not only our breath but just the sense of awareness and by awareness i mean there are different ways to define it non-judgmentally observing what's ever happening in the present moment. Well, as you start to develop that, you become very conscious of what you're doing, how you're behaving in certain situations, by yourself with other people. Um, And then you become more self-aware, and then you can start to self-manage or emotionally regulate yourself a little better. So a lot of times you'll hear people talk about it's, a de- it's about developing the gap between stimulus and response. So in other words, we have something happen to us. Someone says something unpleasant to us. Then there's a brief moment where instead of just reacting to it, we can pause and think how to choose to do so more skillfully. And that really is what yoga and meditation and any other contemplative practice is all about. Um, I think it's very funny when people say, and I hear people say this: "Well, I can't, I can't uh, meditate because I'm—that's against my religion. I'm Muslim, or I can't meditate because I'm atheist." Um, tell me what's religious about observing your breath. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing. Or, or if you were Muslim, you could meditate on Muhammad, right? It depends what the object of your or christian on christ it depends what the object of your meditation is and so i really think about it as a tool set for developing emotional intelligence which can help you to be a more self-aware happy productive person both for your own happiness as well as for those around you
0: so how do psychedelics then come into this?
1: Oh, sure. So, you know, I was, I was really drawn to doing psychedelics. I was absolutely fascinated when I first heard about the idea. And I can't remember where I first heard about it, but I know the time. It was early in eighth grade. So I was probably, I was a year old for my grade. So I was probably 13 years old. You know, I was a precocious young man. And um, I remember finding out about it. These were early days of the internet. So I w- America Online, if you remember that. So I was able to log in and do some, in search a bit online. But it was really when one of my teachers, when I told him about my interest, I obviously felt comfortable doing so. And he suggested that I read The Doors of Perception by Aldous Huxley and not really change my life. Um, I did not, I should note, I did not do psychedelics for probably another year and a half later. And I would recommend anyone who has the interest to really take your time and do research for a long time before you actually do it. Don't just do it on a whim, but yeah, I, I just, I was drawn to it. You know, I'm a very intellectually curious person and I think the idea that you could just enter this other portal, this other world, was fascinating to me. And basically, I did it a year later. I was a freshman in high school. So let's see, I must have been a little older than that in eighth grade, I was wrong, because I think I was probably just turning 16 when I first did it. Yeah, I tried mushrooms and LSD that year. And then I would say from that time forward, really, you know, up until the present, I would say, you know, psychedelics have always been something that I've done. They've really been something that I've maybe done a handful of times a year, maybe three to five times, something like that. So, you know, it's not something that I ever would even think about doing like, oh, Friday nights rolled around, let's, do some mushrooms. It's just not that kind of thing for anyone who who has done that. They know that. But it really is a way of exploring your consciousness and to kind of, to to say some practical things and we can unpack later what consciousness is because that's a big term. But what I really have gotten out of it is it's given me, it always gives me a profound sense of perspective on myself, on life, Um, I'm often left feeling with a deep sense of gratitude. A lot of times for the relationships of the people in my life, for all the ways in which I feel just very blessed in a secular sense for um, what a great life I have. And it's really, it depends totally on the trip. So it could be a low level. It could be that's what I'm taking away from it. A bigger dose you know where you have that experience of ego dissolution where it really dissolves that sense of self that is something that is very powerful and i think even though i had no interest in religion or spirituality in my teenage years when i was doing this it opened me up to it later on because it gave me a very deep sense that everything in this universe is interconnected and not like this is going to be hard to imagine for people maybe you haven't had this experience but not I don't mean that when I was on it I had the thought everything in the universe is interconnected like I just felt that deep in the core of my being it was it was an intuition that was almost beyond language or beyond thought like I just felt it without articulating it even to myself in the form of thought and so, it really laid the foundation for that early on and, and this is what we know about the power of psychedelics, and this is the connection with meditation is that sense of e- ego dissolution that dissolving the sense of self, that reason for using psychedelics as a tool to dissolve the ego as a way to really explore what the self is that is something that psychedelics does that is what meditation does, and we not only know this from. Many, many accounts of different people who are both adept in meditation and psychedelics. But now we have scientific studies affirming that. And we're beginning to know why in terms of the brain. So Dr. Roland Griffith of Johns Hopkins University has done a large study in terms of psychedelics and mystical experiences. He's done different studies. Sometimes the people will have no experience whatsoever with psychedelics. And might not have any particular religious background. Sometimes he'll pick people who are very advanced meditators and don't have little to no prior experience. And he's giving them psilocybin, which is what's a psychoactive ingredient in mushrooms. And the results are astonishing. You know, overwhelmingly, people tend to cite it as one of the most significant experiences of their life. Um, And... We also know from the research of people like Dr. Robin Carhart-Harris out of Imperial College in London, who's a neuroscientist, exactly kind of why and how psychedelics do this. So both psychedelics and meditation, and Robin Carhart-Harris is just focusing on psychedelics, to be fair. I'm just cross-referencing other research I know with respect to meditation. But the... Decrease activity in what is called the default mode network part of the brain. And I'm far from an expert on this. I'm just learning more of it myself. But basically, and neuroscientists are still debating some theories on what exactly it is. But what we do seem to know is that As the name implies default it this is sort of our default mode of thinking and it is a self-referential aspect of the brain so in other words when we are constantly sort of thinking um, about thoughts pertaining to ourselves uh, regrets we have about the past worries we have about the future this activity is very high in the default mode network in other words Um, most of the thinking we do. (laughs) There's an interesting study from Harvard um, which actually showed, and this was not on psychedelics, but just related to when we're lost in thought. This was a few years ago, and it showed that most, so much of the time, I forget the percent, but it was more than half, we are either thinking about the past or we're thinking about the future, and when we are, we're really not happy and this is what happens when we're in the zone of the default mode network and psychedelics downregulates that and meditation downregulates that and what also the research on psychedelics shows is that if you look at people's brain scans for example on LSD or psilocybin there is extreme connectivity across different regions of the brain so this is why we can talk about microdosing, but ingesting small amounts of it can be very helpful for problem solving or creative thinking. Or at least we should say there is uh, the, the research is, is nascent, but there's great potential showing that. But that is that's this, all of this is related to the fact that why we have this decreased sense of self and why it produces this quote unquote kind of mystical state.
0: I heard one of the researchers, I think it was from the Johns Hopkins medical team, explaining um, how it is that psychedelics switch off that default mode network. Is that, that's the correct term, hey? Um, and he was saying that, uh, you know, if you imagine that the brain is like a, a hill that's covered with snow, and every time through the course of our lives we take in information and we process that in a specific way, it's like a sled running down that hill, and it carves a groove into the snow. And the more you reinforce those specific pathways, the the stronger they become, to the point where it's almost impossible for the sled to go down the hill in any other direction, which is why, as adults, we become so fixed in our way of processing information and then reacting on that. And then he says um, that when you take psychedelics, it's, it's almost as if you level the snow. You put a whole fresh blanket of snow over the top and for the first time in decades, you suddenly allow the sled to, to, to choose whichever pathway it wants to go down, and that's where it frees us up from uh, this locked-in way of thinking and responding. And in many respects, I think that is, is how it's possible that a leopard can change its spots. You know, so late in life where you believe that you are locked into these self-reinforcing negative patterns of reaction, um, it actually is possible to change, which for me is a, a wonderfully hopeful bit of information. Um, I'm just interested uh, to know what dosing level one needs, both from psychedelics and from meditation, in order to bring about that ego dissolution and to level the snow. So for instance, um, a lot of the people that I've been speaking to in the South African psychedelic community, these are people who are using uh, psilocybin mushrooms recreationally, where they, you know possibly taking maybe just a gram to have a, a bit of a, a party. Um, others will be taking what would be regarded as a two gram mild dose to put them on more of a self-actualization journey, right through to the people who do those deep kind of ceremonial retreats on what they call the hero's dose, which is sort of five grams of dried mushrooms. Um, I realize that this is really sort of weight um, dependent as well in terms of how big one's body is. But um, for you, I think two questions. I don't know if you Uh, able to answer this but for you what differentiates a playful quantity versus a quantity that allows your ego to dissolve and in terms of meditation can one say what is uh, an effective dose of meditation do you need to have meditated five minutes a day for 10 years in order to dissolve the ego or does it have to be an hour and a half session every day what's in your experience how what gets one there
1: well, you raise, wow, there's a lot to say there with respect to both of those. I, before I do, I actually want to just build on what you said, because I think it's really important. I, and I love you sharing that analogy about the, the snow. I actually hadn't heard that. So that's, that's great. And I wanted to say it just makes a ton of sense based off of what we know from neuroscience, right? Not only pertaining to psychedelics, but across a whole other range of fields that's influencing things like positive psychology and other things, which is the idea of neuroplasticity, right? We used to think that certain things were set uh, in terms of our traits, but the idea of neuroplasticity is that, in fact, the brain really is sort of breaking, we can break down and form new neural pathways all the time, really across our lifespan. You know, the famous saying, neurons that fire together, wire together. And this is really what we're doing, not only with psychedelics, but this is what meditation does. This is what learning a different language can do. This is what, if you want to be more compassionate, compassionate exercises can do. So that makes a lot of sense. And that's an important thing for people to take away. And and I would just sort of highlight something important and we can come back to it later because i'll answer your questions but i i just want to say something now while it's on my mind because i think it's very important when i was you know first into psychedelics for a long time and of course it's reflective of my age the kind of experiences i was looking for um i was very much looking for peak experiences and that's part of my personality i'm not trying to pretend that part of the appeal of psychedelics isn't the fact that it's this profound experience in and of itself. But the more I get older, the more I've realized the real value of psychedelics is not just altered states, but altered traits, to paraphrase Houston Smith. And that's the real value in this ultimately, whether it's psychedelics or our yoga practice or our meditation, is how does it actually change you when it done, When it's done? How does it reprogram you? And, and that's a lot of the times how people talk about specifically ayahuasca. And when I did ayahuasca, I definitely had that experience. You literally feel like you're being reprogrammed. Um, opioid addicts who do Ibogaine have a feeling of being reprogrammed. It is all about sort of changing those less behaviors. Uh, less desirable aspects of ourselves, becoming more self-aware of those and then changing those to becoming a more more um, compassionate, kind, happy person. and if you're not doing that, then I would really ask you what the value of that particular experience or practice is for you. you know, if you do yoga every day for two hours but you're still a jerk, then, I would ask even, you know, I would say no matter how well, if you can stand on your head for two hours, I wouldn't really say you're that advanced in yoga, you know, if you don't feel that deep sense of connection to other people. Um, So I just wanted to underscore that and we can come come back to that. But it really is about those long term changing, uh, the long term value of it. And so you asked about the dosage. What does it take to get there? Let's see. I think, and I'm, I'm totally speaking from my own experience here, I would love, this is one of the many reasons that we need more research. And I hope that's a mantra that everyone can sign on to, even if you don't have interest in doing psychedelics or don't even, you're not even comfortable with it being legal yet. How can we assess the benefits and the risk if there's not research? So we really need research to know all these kind of things now. I think those who are doing research like Roland Griffith could speak to that in terms of psilocybin. I'm not an expert. From what I understand, I certainly hear of people doing things like five grams of mushrooms um, to get those big doses. That, that to me, that's a lot. I mean, I've never—I've done mushrooms many times. You know, I've done psychedelics. I, I, I don't—I lost count a long time ago, but— well over 100, 100 to 150, something like that. And I mean, I've never done more than an eighth of mushrooms, 3.5 grams. And I've definitely had that experience on mushrooms. So that would be my own experience. So in terms of dosing for LSD, you know, once again, I'd love to see studies with people who are really working with it in a systematic way with large numbers of people to say where these experiences of dissolution tend to happen. You know, when I've done it, because of the fact, and once again, this is a problem of prohibition. You know, it's very hard to get accurate information on what you're buying, what you're doing. Um, You know, a friend will give me, you know, blotter, and it's supposed to be, you know, one hit, which is 100 to 120 micrograms. You know, I've never intentionally done, you know, even as much as... 300 micrograms but in reality have i probably done that much when someone gave me a dose that they thought was smaller i may well have um so i don't even know the exact biggest amount i've ever done on lsd i would guess it's somewhere in between two and three hundred micrograms but i've definitely experienced that state of ego dissolution for sure multiple times and Ayahuasca, very, it it doesn't lend itself to this kind of scientific measurement because of the very nature of it being sort of a a brew. But that will, that'll definitely do it. (laughs) Ayahuasca will definitely shatter your ego. But by far the most powerful experiences of ego dissolution I've ever had was on ayahuasca. And that might be because I was deliberately not choosing to do 400 micrograms of LSD or five grams of mushrooms. But for me, uh, ayahuasca was definitely the most powerful experience of that.
0: Okay. What's interesting, I've, uh, um, I was uh, sort of comparing the numbers that were coming out of Griffith's research team. Um, with the sort of uh, medically dosed um, synthesized psilocybin, comparing that with what that is likely to be in terms of dried mushrooms. And, uh, you know, for for the listeners who aren't familiar with this, Griffith's program takes people in and they go through a 12-week program of basically traditional talk therapy to prepare them for and then help them integrate just two dosing sessions on the hallucinogen from mushrooms. And the first um, dosing session, they take what would be the equivalent of about just under two grams of mushroom of dried mushrooms, per 70 kilograms of body weight, and then the second dose, which I think is a week or two later, they take the equivalent of about four grams of dried mushrooms, um, which they then regard as a, as a fairly uh, deep psychedelic uh, response. Uh, in South Africa, where um, a few people do these underground kind of um, ceremonial mushroom processes, they take five grams. And having having uh, spoken with people who have tried these different intensities, by the time you get to five grams, that's where your body literally dissolves. All that's left is consciousness, and you go on these extraordinary um, discoveries. But it can also be incredibly intense. And... Um, That's, uh, I think, maybe later on, Adrian, I'd like you to talk about why you don't just leap into this um, without doing a lot of research and a lot of contemplation beforehand. So, Adrian, let's talk a little bit about consciousness in the brain so that we understand what it is that you mean. We have this organ in our heads, um, this physical structure. It works in a mechanical way. And then there's consciousness. What is the difference? How do these work together or, or not?
1: Great question. The first thing to sort of, you know, clarify is that sometimes people use brain and consciousness interchangeably. And that's the one thing I would say is that we just need to separate those two terms. Um, The brain, we obviously know what that is. We don't need to define it. Consciousness is... There is... In, in, let's just say, let me just say, the what consciousness is is very much debated still among people who are really having thoughtful, active discussions in this field, whether they're a neuroscientist or a philosopher or psychologist. But generally speaking, when we refer to consciousness, it's kind of this sense that when we wake up, that the lights go on, right, and then as we move about the day, we are. We're in here, and in here is generally located somewhere in the head, behind the eyes, looking out at everything that's happening out there. So in meditation, for example, people use the term consciousness and awareness interchangeably, right? So when you think about it, nothing really happens as far as you know it outside of the field of your own awareness or consciousness because by definition, you can't know that, right? So that's what consciousness really refers to it's this subjective experience of what it's like to be you right whoever you is and you the notion of what we develop over time is this sense of a personality right and it's really interesting actually the root of the word the the root of the word personality comes from persona which in latin means a mask And when you think about it that way, this is kind of what we wear. This is what we do. We wear masks in different situations, depending on who we're supposed to interact with and how. And we have all of these roles, all of these different layers of our ego, and we identify with them just as we identify with the thoughts that come up like, oh, I'm angry now or I'm sad or I'm happy, as opposed to recognizing that. Thoughts, emotions, are simply things that arise and fall within the field of your awareness. And you don't actually have to latch on to every different one of those thoughts and emotions that come up. And when you study, the more we know about neuroscience and the way the brain works, it's actually pretty clear that We don't have nearly as much control as we think. we, We have the feeling, we're quite positive that we think a thought, like I intend to do this and then it happens. But a lot of the research in this area shows that in fact what more happens is thoughts come up and then we recognize them and we really don't have much control over that. And an extreme example would be And I think we've all had this experience. Have you ever just had a thought pop into your head and you think, God, where did that come from? Like, that wasn't me. I would never think that. That's a terrible thought or that's a terrible thing to do. And this is just illustrative of, you know, the subjectiveness of what consciousness is. And clearly the brain has a lot to do with consciousness. No one's trying to say that. But on a very basic level we can't experience consciousness without the rest of our body so for example you know without the rest of your organs delivering in your heart and your circulatory system delivering blood to your brain <laughs> you wouldn't be conscious not for very long right and we could go on and on down that line and i'm sure a neuroscientist could give a much more sophisticated explanation but it's just this basic idea that Everything is interconnected. The mind is, the brain is not separate from the rest of the body, which is sort of a a popular idea that dates back in Western philosophy, at least to Descartes. And it's really acknowledging that consciousness is something that is this subjective experience and about which we do not know much.
0: Um, It's interesting. There is such a large growing field of what is now being called nutritional psychiatry in the recognition that uh, what goes on in your gut, that basically your gut is an extension of your of your brain in a way, and that um, the, the bacteria you have in your gut has a huge impact on your mood and your experience of the world. Um, which again shows that, that, as you said, this brain is not an isolated cloud floating above everything, attached by a few little tethers. Um, also, I'm interested at the idea that um, Stan Graf, who did a lot of the early, early research into the use of psychedelics and consciousness, you know, he spoke about how we have different ways of trying to access our unconscious. Now, again, this is an area that I don't know terribly much about, but I was interested where he said that... Uh, you know, earlier you, you spoke about when you wake up in the morning, this idea that the lights come on. Um, but when we're asleep, there's still stuff going on as well. And um, the unconscious is a place where we often sort of bury a lot of stuff. And uh, Groff said that the dream state is one way of accessing your unconscious. But when you return from a dream state, you, it, you come back with very flimsy material because so much of uh, you forget so much of your dreams. Um, and then he he said, but psychedelics seem to be a fast track right down there into the basement. So you can go straight down there, have a look what's going on and come back with some useful material. Adrian, let's talk a little bit about microdosing and how that can complement meditation. Uh, in your experience, as well as through your own sort of desktop research, can you flesh that out for us a bit?
1: Sure. Well, let's just define for our listeners what microdosing is. Microdosing is taking very small amounts of psychedelics and the technical definition tends to be it should be at a level where it's really sub perceptual so it's really you're if you're on the borderline of a psychedelic experience you've taken too much for it to qualify as microdosing so a lot of times with mushrooms people might take 0.3 to 0.5 grams of psilocybin mushrooms depending on the strand or they might take anywhere from 5 to 15 micrograms of LSD. When I have done microdosing, I have done a little bit more in the realm of 20 to 25, um, which is what something Neil Goldsmith, who's an LSD researcher, calls a museum dose, which is kind of funny. So you are kind of borderline there. But I've actually found that in this state, I have been able to work very productively and it's really about that balance for you where you are still the, the effects of the plants or the drug isn't so strong that you're starting to kind of lose your focus and a psychedelic experience is unfolding. And you just got to play around with that boundary till you figure out what that is for you. But what really inspired interest in this field is a researcher named Jim Fadiman, who was, and there were others at the time, but you know, Jim, this is back in the 60s, but Jim was the last one to do a microdosing uh, scientific research before it was outlawed in the United States. I believe it was 1966, and he gave people pretty high doses, actually. I think it was more like even. Uh, 50 micrograms of LSD or he gave people of the equivalent for mescaline of it might have even worked out to about double that, uh, the equivalent of that. Um, But they would also sit around for several hours before, I think it was about three hours and have a bit of a, just sort of enjoy the effects of the drug. And then when it had worn off after a few hours or subsided a bit, they would then have particular creative problems in their own field to work on. So some of them were engineers or architects. And while the data sample was small, the results were very encouraging. Um, Most of the people overwhelmingly found that it was very helpful for them in terms of coming up with sort of um, a breakthrough in the way that they thought about a problem or a design. And unfortunately it became illegal so people couldn't research it more, but people have been doing this a lot in Silicon Valley for years, despite the fact that it was illegal. And there's been an upsurge in interest in this recently. For example, people who develop who write code find that it, it really helps them to kind of connect the dots and think more creatively when they're programming. And so that's really the idea of microdosing, is that it can enhance – smaller amounts can actually enhance creativity or problem solving. And so – I chose to experiment with this over a period of a few months, and I certainly found that it was the case. Um, I would say a couple things about it. One, I've always had ADHD. I took ADHD medication from the time I was young. I By young, I mean I was diagnosed when I was seven, I got on at about 15. I was often on it in, throughout my 20s all the way up into my early 30s. It helped me focus, but it's got a lot of side effects. I haven't been on it for years, and I found that being or doing microdosing, I was able to hyperfocus in a way that I haven't experienced since being on that medication, and it also did not have the side effects of being on Adderall, which really is a not great feeling of being on amphetamines. Um And the other thing I definitely felt was it's certainly I felt like I was definitely able to kind of connect the dots between different ideas. Uh, I felt that when I wrote that it was a wonderful kind of catalyst for creative writing. There were occasions when I took and this could have been anywhere from 20 to a bit higher, like 40 to 50 micrograms. Um, where I I definitely felt insight into things in my personal life. I just kind of saw the connections between a few different threads and how to address them and how to move forward forward with them. And then later on, later that day or the next day or later that week, I was able to do so. So that's the test, right? Is do you carry it off the mat, the altered traits, not just the altered states? Does it actually have an impact? And I was able to find uh, that it was helpful. So those are the benefits in terms of problem solving and creativity. And then in terms of meditation, you know, it's it's really kind of going back to what we said earlier in terms of reducing activity in the default mode network. So you're not going to have an experience of ego dissolution at 20 micrograms or even at 50 micrograms. But on the other hand, what you are going to be able to do is you're able to maintain a sense of awareness, right? And a sense of centeredness that you're not going to have when you're on a full psychedelic trip, right? Because that trip is so powerful, it just takes over. So you're able to maintain that center while also enjoying some of the benefits of. The LSD or the psilocybin or whatever the psychedelic is in terms of reducing activity in the default mode network. And what that ex- feels like on a subject, subjective level to me is that I'm able to enter into what I would call, and granted this is vague, an expanded state of consciousness uh, easier or more deeply or for longer periods of time. When I microdose and combine that with meditation at the same time.
0: Adrian, I have, um, uh, so just to again frame my own podcast for you, um, you know, I've been trying to explore um, the therapeutic uh, benefits of psilocybin and other hallucinogens. And obviously, I've had quite a few South Africans get hold of me and say, okay, well, you know, I know the substance is, is illegal, but I want to try it. And, um, because it's very hard for them to find, to tap into this kind of underground community that we have here in South Africa and access the substance and the right place to take it in. But people literally say, well, I'm desperate. I want to just go and buy a whole lot of mushrooms, go home, swallow the lot and see what happens. And of course, that's the worst thing you could do, particularly if you're in a slightly vulnerable state. Um, so, what I always say to people is you know firstly, you absolutely have to consult your doctor before you try anything like this, and secondly, you, you, the last thing you want to do is is take these substances on your own because uh, you know a deep psychedelic experience can be very, very intense um, and You mentioned earlier on um, in our conversation that uh, you really recommend that anyone do, it, that if anyone is considering psychedelics, they should do a lot of research. Um, explain what you mean by that and why you think it's necessary.
1: Sure. Um, and I'll talk about the dosage as well, because I think that's important. So about psychedelics, I mean, let's, let's talk about the, the inaccurate sense of kind of the risks. So the bullshit about psychedelics, are we allowed to swear on your show? I just did, I guess i feel so strongly about the bullshit about psychedelics and it's true with a lot of the drug war actually including a lot of other drugs that i would have no interest in doing and have never done and wouldn't recommend to others like heroin but the the information that's actually out there is it's the claims that the government has made about these drugs are simply not as severe they don't hold up to the actual scientific data and i would strongly encourage you a brief aside to look at the research of dr carl hart out of columbia university who talks about this his memoir high price is amazing and he's got some ted talks but he does scientific studies on human beings who are taking all sorts of drugs including like crack cocaine you know and the results would surprise you. So the the one thing I would say is let's agree to have science and reason drive this discussion, not our ideological agenda. And then based off of that data make informed decisions. And let me throw something out there on a personal level. So just to show that I have some stake in the game. I, I, I see value in microdosing. That said there's not enough research out there. There, there is potential. It's, there's some possibility we know because of a certain serotonin receptor that it acts on, that if you were to microdose over a long period of time, it could have cardiac issues. Uh, the Hefter Research Institute, which does a lot of research on psilocybin out in New Mexico, has talked about this. And I'm all about saying, hey, We don't know all the research, so be aware of that. And that doesn't mean, even if it helps with creativity and problem-solving subjectively for you, that you should just sign on for doing microdosing two days a week for the rest of your life. You know, we we need more research on this. And so that caveat sort of thrown out there. Um, Psychedelics, really, we know this. They are not toxic for the body in the sense that no matter how much LSD you take, or how much psilocybin you take, you cannot die from it. That's true, you cannot overdose from it. That's as opposed to, say, alcohol, (laughs) a legal drug, which you absolutely can die from from drinking too much, right? So that's an important qualification is psychedelics are not toxic in the sense that you cannot die from them. The research that we know from psychedelics does not show any evidence of damage to the brain or any other side effects like that. In fact, there is some evidence to suggest that at least certain psychedelics can facilitate uh, neurogenesis, the development of nerve tissue, not the elimination of nerve tissue. And so all of that said, so it's not dangerous in those respects, but... It is one of the most powerful experiences you could ever have in your life. Um, you will definitely have the sense if you take high enough of a dose. This is the important thing to realize. You're not in control. And I would argue that's actually one of the, the powerful takeaways and benefits of doing psychedelics is it's all related to ego death, right? Like you are are not... <laughs> this universe doesn't revolve around you. You are not in control nearly as much as you think. It gives you a sense of humility. It gives you a sense of interconnectedness. But, it can be very destabilizing. And you will not be in control while you're on this uh, drug. and Or plant. Whichever you want to call it, depending on what you're using. But I mean, I have absolutely had experiences where... You know, it took me to the absolute edge of my psyche. Um, It took me, it felt like to the edge of the universe, like beyond anything that one could imagine if they had never done something like this before. And so I would strongly recommend that you read research on sites like Erowid, that's E-R-O-W-I-D, and I think it's .com or .org, but just Google Arrowhead. Read many, many different accounts. Read things like the Psychedelic Explorer's Guide like Jim Fadiman. Um, you read, read research of people like Roland Griffith right at Johns Hopkins who are doing these, um, these experiments with psychedelics in a controlled setting. And we know what works and what doesn't work. So here's the thing about having a bad trip, quote-unquote. Um, Number one, I would say, first of all, you shouldn't be taking psychedelics by yourself. Especially your first time, but probably, maybe ever, but certainly for a very long time. Don't take psychedelics by yourself. You really want to know the source, where they're coming from. You really want to do research and think about what you're getting yourself into. Talk about a lot of these things. Think about your intentions for doing this. This is all very important And then the really crucial things are what's popularly called set and setting. So your set is your your mental state going into the experience and your setting is the physical environment. And so actually when we're able to control these variables um, and the setting is particularly subject to control, right, our environment, we really reduce drastically the risks associated with working with these substances. So for example, um, taking a psychedelic at a rock concert, I know that's a popular place to do it. I've done it on multiple occasions. Um, I wouldn't do it anymore. (laughs) And I definitely don't recommend that to others, especially if it's your first time. Um, You want to be in an area where you are with someone else, I would say you're you're basically able to control all the variables, right? So let's say you're in a private home. Ideally, you really want to be connected to nature. So you want to be able to go outside and inside to nature in a very easy way. You want to have everything taken care of before. So you don't want to realize five hours in like, Oh man, we're starting to get hungry and we don't have food. We have to go out to the grocery store. Like, you take care of every little thing that you need. You don't want to be around anyone else who's not on psychedelics, like, say, at a party where a bunch of other people are there, especially if they're on alcohol and they can be loud and obnoxious. I would recommend, ideally, you know, that you have someone else who's sober and who's not on the medication who could supervise you, but especially someone who is experienced in working with these substances themselves, that's definitely the ideal. And so you really want to pay attention to all of these factors and you want to do research on the dosage. I would recommend starting out that you really start out with a lower dose and be okay with the fact that like You're not going to go to outer space your first time and that's okay. Like eating, you can do a microdose or you can even eat like if you're really wanting a full on trip, eating a gram of mushrooms, which depending on your weight and height, maybe that could do it for you. To me, that would be a very light buzz. That would not be a trip, but maybe you want to just have that light buzz your first time just to kind of feel your way into it and realize, oh my God, okay, this is, you know, Not going to kill me. I realize what it feels like coming on, right? Um, And and just take your time and really adjust to it like that. And this is really important. Give it time to set in. This is such a common mistake. People eat it. 20 minutes later, 30 minutes later, 45 minutes later, they think, well, I'm not feeling anything. I'm going to eat the rest of them or I'm going to eat more. That is such a common story. I did it my first time. I ate half a bag of mushrooms. I I bought an eighth. I didn't feel it after 30 40 minutes, so I ate the rest of them. And you know, it was fine. I had a I had a good trip, but eating 3.5 grams of mushrooms on your first trip might not be the best piece of advice for everyone. So, give them a long time to settle in and really pay attention to all those variables on your I mentioned about setting. Go to Uh, So Jim Fadiman talks about this in the Psychedelic Explorer's Guide. Read about it on Airwood. Really pay close attention to all those factors. And then just one note about set. So your set is your mental mind state going into it. You need to be in a healthy state of mind, right? So if you were really looking forward to doing this and you'd been planning it for weeks, but then you had this horrible argument with your wife and it's really upset you, and you're trying to put it in the back of your mind, because, and you think it's not going to bother you, but you know, really it is. It's there. <laughs> I would say you might want to wait. Now, on the other hand, who knows? Maybe it'll be helpful, and you'll get certain experience or insight into that problem. You, you may well, but just know that you're going to take that into your psychedelic experience. And so you really want to be in a healthy state of mind. So if you're suffering, um, I was going to say if you're suffering from depression, but if you're suffering from depression, I would say you definitely need to be honest in talking with your psychologist or psychiatrist about this because um, you should be upfront about that. And just if you're going through a period in your life where you're going through a tough time, I would just, I would be a little more cautious about taking it then. So although we know, Psychedelics can be helpful with depression. A lot of the research shows that. If you're not going to do that in consultation with your therapist, I would really maybe only think about microdosing a small amount before you just jump into a big psychedelic trip because you are going to bring your mental state into that experience with you.
0: Um, Adrian, we need to wrap up. This has been absolutely fascinating and your your breadth of knowledge is quite remarkable, um, as well as your ability to articulate it. So I want to thank you for that. Could you just wrap up by um, telling us how we can find you online and where we can find your podcast?
1: Sure thing. Thank you, Leonie. And thank you for having me on. I've really enjoyed this conversation. So for those of you who are interested, you can follow me at hackingconsciousness.org, and that is the same name of a podcast that I have, Hacking Consciousness, which is available not only on hackingconsciousness.org, but it's also available on iTunes and Stitcher and the Google Music Store. And uh, in addition to the podcast, and I do about one a week, I also write blog posts. Um, I'm most active on Twitter, and my handle on Twitter is at Hacking Conscious, but without the G. So it's H-A-C-K-I-N-C-O-N-S-C-I-O-U-S. And so that's Twitter. And then I also have a Facebook page, Hacking Consciousness, on which I'm, I'm quite active as well. If you want to email me with any questions or thoughts or comments, I'd love to hear from you. It's that same Twitter handle, so Hacking Conscious with no G, at gmail.com.